Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. Hop varieties like Citra and Mosaic weren't even being cultivated 20 years ago. So the flavors and experiences that are available have totally changed. And I feel like that's changed British brewing culture. I think it's made it more open and more interesting and more diverse. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. Joining us this week is Matthew Curtis, an award-winning freelance writer, broadcaster, and author based in Manchester. You may be familiar with his work as editor-in-chief of Pellicle Magazine, a publication and podcast focused on beer, cider, wine, food, and travel. Matt's most recent book, Modern British Beer, is the focus of our conversation. The book itself provides a look at 80 different beers produced annually in the UK. In sharing the perspectives of the producers and the tasting notes of the beers themselves in first-person narrative, Matt highlights the diversity of these beverages and how they are a reflection of place, values, and ethics. Our conversation dives into the aspects of modernity, the influence continental and American producers have had on the flavors and production practices he documents, and the space these beers occupy in an evolving contemporary European beer market. We also consider who drinkers of modern beer are, where traditional brewers sit in the landscape Matt describes, and the statement Camera, the campaign for real ale, made by publishing this book. Modern British beer can be purchased directly from the publisher from a link provided in the episode notes. Let's dive and get heavy. Matthew Curtis, welcome to Heavy Hops. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Alexi, thank you for having me. So let's talk about uh, your new book, uh, Modern British Beer. And maybe this is kind of an opportunity to tell us about yourself a little bit too. So how did you find beer and uh, sort of writing? So it's funny because I'm based in Manchester in the UK, as you can probably tell from my accent, I am English, but... I have a connection to to the US, to to Colorado specifically. So my family is from a part of the UK called Lincolnshire. Uh, But 11 years ago, my dad, a guy called Frank, he got offered a job in the US uh, based in Fort Collins, home of some amazing breweries, which he he took. Um, And that kind of opened up this world of American craft beer to me. Um, I was really into Belgian beer and British English real ale at the time, but as someone who liked it, not someone who obsessed over it. But when I went to the US and I went to the Odell tap room, and I tell this story a lot, but it, it, it's so important to my journey. I experienced this this culture that was unrecognizable to me, and I tried my first fresh American IPA at the source, and the flavor was so bold yet so balanced, and I was so interested by it. It just sent me into this enthusiastic state that I've never got out of since. And when I got back from that trip, which was in July 2010, I was just searching for as many British beers that were made like this as possible and trying to find American imports and like scrabbling to get like, I remember there was like a release of Race of Five from Bear Republic. I stayed up till midnight to order it as soon as the, the bottle shop was releasing the stock. I wouldn't do that anymore, but uh, that's what I was like at the time. And my reaction to all of this happening and all of this enthusiasm was to find a way to to talk about it. So I started a beer blog. Uh, I used to, my first blog was actually about guitars and guitar pedals. That was, that was a passion of mine, but um, no one read it. <laughs> but I started writing about beer and I found this little community of beer bloggers and people did read my blog and it kind of snowballed from there. A few years in, I was offered some professional commissions and then they kept coming and uh, I decided to leave my well-paid job in musical instrument distribution, which is what I was working in at the time. And I went full-time as a writer, which I've been for almost six years. So writing about beer for 10 years. So writing about beer is my full-time job. And modern British beer 
I came up with the idea for this book in 2018 and I did actually like meet with some publishers and they weren't beer adjacent and they weren't really interested in it. It's, you know, it's quite a, a niche geeky subject, right? And in 2020, just before the world changed forever, uh, I met this guy called Alan Murphy, who was uh, a commissioning editor at Camera Books. So Camera is the campaign for real ale. I've been around since the 70s largely responsible for saving cask ale as a, as a format uh, in the UK and, and around the world. But they have a publishing division. They put quite a lot of books out. But they were looking for new voices with some new ideas. Uh, and by their standards, I'm, I'm, I'm a young writer, I guess. And that's, so they came to me asking for an idea. And I said, well, actually, I've got one. Uh, and Alan helped me hone it into what would eventually become the finished book, Modern British Beer. And I spent most of uh, lockdown planning it and working it out. A lot of the on-site research wasn't possible for obvious reasons. Um, and then I wrote it this year uh, over a period of about 12 weeks. Uh, and then it was away uh, and then it was released on August the 12th. Um, so yeah, it's, what is it? Modern British beer. It's my philosophy of beer uh, and why I think beer in the UK has, has changed forever. Like it's unrecognisable from what it was 20 years ago, but uh, I think that's important. And I also think that hasn't taken anything away from all of the good stuff we had already, all of the traditional culture. Mm -hmm. And what was, why was it important to distinguish this work from the reservoir of sort of beer history, of British beer history that already exists? That's a great question because there's a lot of great beer books out there already, especially on, on English beer culture and British beer culture that and camera published quite a lot of these, but I'm a millennial, you know, and there's not a lot of people my age that have really summed up our beer experience since we uh, became of drinking age. So in the UK, you can go to a pub and buy a beer from the age of 18. That's when it's legal to drink alcohol. And my dad took me to my village pub, near Lincoln, where I grew up, um, as idyllic as you would imagine a village pub to be. It doesn't have a thatch roof, but it is very nice. And But the beer selection was terrible 20 years ago. Uh, and I didn't, re I wasn't really into real ale. That's not, it's not a cool thing. It wasn't 20 years ago. Uh, it's not what you drank when you first started going out drinking. I drank a, a lager called Foster's, an Australian import. Not even an import, actually. Probably brewed under license in the UK. And it, I guess it's like the UK equivalent to a, a mass-produced lager. It's not quite the same as a US light lager. Uh, it's much sweeter, I find, um, but not a very nice beer. I didn't mind at the time. But I got thinking a few years ago about how if you were becoming of drinking age now, whether you were turning 21 in the States or 18 in the UK, if you went into a, a bottle shop, a liquor store, uh, or a bar, or a pub, and you saw the options that you had now, hundreds of styles, thousands of different breweries. So what, you've got 9,000 plus breweries in the US. We've got over 2,000 here in the UK. 20 years ago, we had a few hundred. It's not the same. That experience, what you expect. And also, hops, hop varieties like Citra and Mosaic weren't even being cultivated 20 years ago. So the flavors and experiences that are available have totally changed. And I feel like that's changed British brewing culture, I think it's made it more open and more interesting and more diverse. And I wanted to write a book that explains all of that and what where modernity is in terms of British beer. What I will say is I think the book is already out of date. It's a snapshot of now, of, of what beer in the UK is like in 2021. And it's already changing. One of the breweries in the book has already moved to another part of the country, completely ruining, ruining everything. Thanks, Reese at Donzoco Brewery. Um, and no, it's, it's all right. We're cool, just about. But yeah, it's, it's this summarization of where we're at now. But it also is reflective on how, yes, we have a, a huge US influence in the UK in terms of our beers now. We have so many breweries making hazy IPAs and pastry stouts, but we also have breweries making amazing best bitters, in fact, some brewers in the book are modern breweries who are returning to styles like mild and golden ale. There's a huge lager renaissance happening. There's like about six or seven lagers in the book. And some of them are influenced by uh, German lagers. Some of them are influenced by Czech lagers. Some of them are lagers made with completely 
English ingredients, you know. So it's really interesting to see this tapestry. And I chose 86 beers from 86 breweries that I think are great. Divided them up by region because I think regionality is something that is returning to to British brewing. And then uh, I try and use each one as a case study. So on their own, they're nice little stories. But I think together they form an argument to say this is what beer looks like now. And some of the beers in there are about 30 years old. I think that's the oldest one in there. I cut it off around the 90s. Some of the beer, some of the breweries in there have existed for less than a year. So it's it brings you right up to now. And now what happens after it is going to be the next the next step. I don't know what that is yet. Mm-hmm. No, I think that the book uh, successfully accomplishes the aim of finding these places where modernity, whether it's the sensibilities of the people that are making the beer uh, in terms of like conservation, in terms of their business ethics, in terms of the wide variety of beers that are out there and the sort of impulses that created them in the first place and people from different backgrounds and regionality. I mean, it it mashes all of that together um, uh, very successfully. And so I, I kind of, you know, in reading it, wanted to take a step back and think of like, you know, these people that are starting breweries in 2010 plus uh, specifically, like these aren't people necessarily that are from brewing families. These are people that are kind of entering the category a little bit differently. What, what do you think kind of draws these people in that may be different than family brewers? So I think that it's, it looks largely similar to what happened in the US over the last 20 years. These are uh, 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 younger people, a lot of them, like myself, had that experience in the US and saw how beer culture was changing over there and was were tasting uh, newer beers, different styles, seeing that breweries weren't restricting themselves to one style. There are breweries who make IPAs who then have a sour program who are buying fooders and oak-aging and blending and going, wow, this is the, the potential here. You know, there is this wonderful a little rose-tinted image of idyllic British brewing, the family brewers, the Cascale, those lovely old logos, gold lettering, that, you know, you know what I'm talking about. But now if you could walk into a, a bar or a, a, a bottle shop and find cans that look like a, it's a US brewery, you know, tall cans of hazy beer that's really expensive. And a lot of it is really delicious. Uh, and that's really cool. But yeah, I think it's, a lot of them are, were hugely inspired by the idea that you didn't need that background to go into brewing, just like like in the US. I think that entrepreneurial US spirit is something that doesn't really exist here, but a lot of people traveling over there going, well, actually, I can start my own brewery and I want to pursue that. And a lot of the breweries that started in the last five or 10 years have grown quite a bit and, um, and look a lot like US breweries. And when, before the pandemic, when uh, I've, had friends in the US come to visit me. I was like, I want to take you to this brewery. They're like, yeah, I don't want to go to that one that looks like the US brewery. I want you to take me to the pub and I want to drink cask from a 200-year-old brewery. I understand that now. That was actually really important in helping me formulate the idea of, of the book. And it's not just about these these hype breweries that are making excellent beer. Um, but one of the breweries that's a good example of that is Boxcar Brewery, based in Bethnal Green in East London, very hip part of town. I guess it's like the Brooklyn of, of London, um, and they are in the most stereotypical modern brewery, chemtile floor, shiny stainless steel vessels. They make hazy IPAs. They make some great saisons. But the head brewer, a guy called Sam Dickerson, got really obsessed with Dark Mild and drinking that on cask. And he went to a Dark Mild festival and was like, I'm going to try all of these and then I'm going to try and make my perfect version of that. And now he makes a Dark Mild, which is the beer of his in the book. And serves it in his brewery by cask dispense and it's one of the best-selling beers this brewery does and it's really funny how that's gone full circle from him trying to emulate a u.s brewery and now i know u.s breweries that are making dark miles and bitters and that's wild to me i really i really enjoy how sort of pervasive this the culture has been um but so what i learned in writing the book is as i said earlier while, yes, there is this new wave of brewers doing exciting things, I think there is still, that we haven't lost anything. There is this fear among older drinkers in particular that we're losing this heritage. And actually, I think as these younger breweries are maturing and growing into themselves, they are finding deeper respect for, for brewing tradition with English styles, with 
um, the German lagers that have been reproduced by UK brewers at the moment are in, are incredible. Um, so I like there's this global influence, but a lot of uh, a lot more respect and maturity, I think, coming from the like the latest wave of brewers as they sort of grow into themselves. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, uh, I think that that sort of an interesting perspective is how does Cameron, how do sort of like traditional brewers, uh, how are they kind of folded into this modernity? Because what they do isn't necessarily lost. Every part of what makes this modern is that people are, are, Picking from things that they uh, that they find in this sort of creative and scientific sense that draws them to this in the first place, and then uh, create something new out of it. I, I think that that's like a whole part of the the modernity. And so I wanted to ask about Camera and their them as a publisher. Um, how did they feel about putting uh, their resources and weight behind a book? Obviously, they did uh, that showcases products beyond the scope of their campaign, and like how do how do these these pieces kind of uh, fit together? Because as an outsider, uh, you know, we see I would see camera as maybe someone that would be uh, asserting you know a very specific view of what uh, what real ale is and what that defines as far as tradition and its role in drinking culture. Uh, but this sends a pretty strong signal by putting its weight behind this book. That's a really great, great question because that that's something that really defined the, the early stages of the book. Like, oh, there has to be real ale in it. So for those who don't know what camera is, when it was founded in the early 70s, the, the real ale, as in living beer in a cask and then was served either through a beer engine, a hand pull, uh, or, or via gravity, which means straight from the cask. That was dying. It was being squashed by a group of breweries, which was colloquially known as the, the Big Six. But Camera is a, is a consumer organization, largely volunteer-led. It's the largest consumer organization in Europe now with 170,000 members. I am a member these days. I only joined a couple of years ago because when I first got into beer, I thought they were old hat. Um, they didn't have a clue. And there was some nervousness from me when when I pitched the book because uh, one of the beers, I had to give a couple of examples of the beers I was going to put in the book. And I thought, Fine Ales Jarl, which is the first beer in the book. It's at the start of the Scottish chapter. And that's one of my favourite beers. And I also think it's a really important beer. It's the second ever beer brewed in the UK to use Citra. It's 100% Citra single hop beer, but it's a 3.8% cask beer. So it's this wonderful fusion of traditional brewing um, with a modern American imported ingredient. And I said, this is the perfect example of a modern Scottish and a modern British beer. And the pushback from camera came well this isn't like what we think of as scottish beers we think of we heavies we think of uh, you know the 80 shillings that kind of malt forward beer and i said no like when i've been to scotland to to fine ales which is based on a farm in the highlands surrounded by hills and a lock that stretches out where they they farm oysters that are some of the most delicious oysters you'll eat you drink that beer that incorporates the idea of modernity with this ingredient, with citra, which they use to, to bitter and add aroma to the beer. So it's quite sharp and citrusy. But 3.8%, you want to drink this by the imperial pint. It's delicious. And it really speaks to me of a sense of place and, and that Scottish beer. And I had to make an argument for that beer because I knew that like, if they agreed to that, then I would have leeway to do what I wanted. And they knew that there were going to be beers in there that are not cask beer. Most There are some really nice cask beers in there, but there are a lot of beers in there that are from cans or kegs only. And that's formats that they've only embraced recently. And because Camera is a consumer organization, it's actually split regionally by branches. It has a central head office, um, which is really progressive. And then some of the, the branches littered around the country, mine in South Manchester, uh, quite progressive largely, but some of them are not. Some of them are still resistant to, to beer served from keg because they remember the 70s. They remember when these bland beers were forcing out this style. And so that they haven't ever moved on from that. When I finished the book and su- submitted it, any trepidation that was felt at camera 
turned to this wave of excitement, like it was tangible. They were, you know, they were putting their name, their logo on a book that talks about beers they haven't really published a book about before. That was exciting. I was fucking petrified. I was like, if they hate this, what, like, I've spent more effort and hours on this than I have anything else in my life. And I don't want to have to rewrite it. I don't want to have to email brewers and say, I'm taking this beer out because they say you don't make cask. No, they actually turned around and said, this is great. I had phone calls from people at camera head office telling me we're so excited to, to see this book coming out because they've been trying to move forward for a few years. And this really adds a, a string to that bow. Really? They can talk about, this is an example of modern beers and when they're festivals, they do these great big festivals, the great British beer festival uh, in London, which is the festival that inspired the great American beer festival. They're very different events. Don't get me wrong, but I can't wait for that to come back next year and, and stand up and hopefully have keg beer on the bar next to cast beer. Cause the books about all of this is good. All of this is part of the modern beer, but one isn't taking away from the other. It's not a battle. Uh, it's it's about celebrating beer. We drink beer because it tastes great. It makes us happy. We drink it with our friends. We enjoy it on our own while we're reading a book. It, you know, it bridges all these nice moments in life. And that's it's not about arguing: is this craft beer? Is this real ale? No, it's about saying this is this is modern British beer. This is what makes modern British beer. It's delicious. It's joyful. It brings people together. It thinks about sustainability, community, and yeah, so it, it's, it's, I'm immensely proud that it says camera on the label. You know, I still get people saying, you know, I'm interested in this, but come on, it's camera. What do they think? It's like, well, actually, they, they rolled the dice on this. Um, and I'm really glad they did. And they were incredibly supportive. Like, they gave me so much control. Uh, and they don't dumb my language down in the book. It's all me. Uh, it, there's no like, oh, we think you should have said this. That didn't happen. So yeah, it, I'm immensely proud, and it's it's really great to have their support. And it, working with them this closely has completely changed my opinion of what they're trying to achieve as an organization. I don't think that's got out there a lot. So I feel like invested in working with them to help talk about that. Now I'm going to work with my branch locally and with Cameron nationally. Uh, because I think they do really important work. If you ever drink a great pint of cask beer, that's probably because camera exists. And I think it's really important to remember that. Mm -hmm. And you're definitely a strong uh, ally for them uh, as well. And I think that there's a, a commonality that people that are creating all of these types of, uh, of you know, modern beer that you're talking about in this book and the traditional cask producers. And the same thing is that it's an outright rejection of uh, Garrett Oliver's yellow fizzy beer. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, actually, Garrett's been hugely supportive of, of my work in recent years. And uh, I hope he gets a copy. I can't wait to see what he thinks. I'm nervous. I want to I want to dive back into a point that you made about regionality because it is an important organizing structure for the book and I want and you also mentioned regionality in a different way as far as sort of the diff, the attitudes of different camera branches can you explain some of the what or what you may imagine as the sort of root of where some of these different uh, regional views may uh, may be uh, with re with regard to camera, and is it sort of tied to some of the regionality uh, that people experience in uh, in styles or production too? I think there are actually two very different things. So, so just to try and explain how camera works, like I say, it has this central office, and that's like people who are paid. They do like camera is a business, and they there are people who work there and. Uh, a small staff that, that do that job. But then everything else from that is, is voluntary. It's done by people. It's a campaign. It's designed to protect something that is seen as uh, institutionally important in, in British tradition and, and, and history. Um, and it's important now. And it's something people drink every day, but it, you know, by ga gallons and gallons of the stuff. But Every branch is split by these small regions. Like even Manchester, where I live, there's central Manchester, south Manchester, um, Rochdale, which is a northern part of Manchester, 
Bolton, which is in the northwest of Manchester, they all have different uh, branches. And essentially, it's like a little club. Before the pandemic, they would get together in a pub, discuss what they do. They all have their own little magazine. But then because of this, you have personalities. And, you know, just like myself, and I have my strong opinions about beer, there are other people that have very strong opinions about beer. Regardless of what people try and tell you, beer is a very political thing. People are very passionate about it. It, That's because beer is important, right? And... Some people have the opinion that what has happened in beer in the last 10, 20 years, this modernization, this introduction of new styles, new flavors, that is, that is bad. That is a threat to, to the traditional uh, way of British drinking, that it's somehow dumbing it down. Something I argue in the book is, is not the case, and I strongly believe that, especially because I see the passion from, from younger people now for, for real ale. But, yeah, the book talks about regionality in terms of how... We've seen this, we're a small island, you know. I I talked about how I have family in Colorado. Well, I think England is actually, in terms of a landmass, smaller than Colorado. And, but we have over 2,000 breweries crammed onto this tiny island. And it's it's a crowded market, much like the US. It's dominated by major players. 72% of all beer is sold by five breweries, which, you know, InBev, Coors, Heineken, Asahi. It's the same names. We've got Diageo with Guinness, which is, such a ubiquitous brand here as well as it is in the US. And then in between the new wave of brewers and and those major brewers, you've got these old family brewers that have been around for for some of them a hundred or more years. And they they're the breweries that survived the 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 post-war uh, absorption into these companies. Um and they are they're quite defensive they're often multi-generational or they're they're run by people who've been uh, they run it more like a business rather than people trying to make good beer who haven't quite figured out how to run a business yet you know that's that's a familiar story in craft beer isn't it mm-hmm. but they often look at the the smaller brewers as a threat because some of them have been wildly successful and grown some of them have already sold out i mean beavertown which exploded out of london uh in about 2012, I think it was, they are part owned by Heineken now. I decided not to put them in the book because I didn't consider that really a route to modernity, in my opinion. Um, but, you know, there are breweries that, that they a lot of the old family brewers can look at some of the younger brewers and think, well, they're t- trying to take the slice of our pie. And it is this is the thing, it's a limited amount of space. There's, there's only so many glasses to fill. What I think is happening now, there's so many brewers, is there are breweries that are getting to a certain size and going, that's enough. We're just, we're making enough beer. We're earning a living. We're employing people. They're earning a living. We have good quality of life. We're making good beer. And and that's good, but we need to make beer that is of ourselves and of our place. Um, the Colonel Brewery in London is one really good example of this. Their beers just taste like the Colonel beers, um, you're in Chicago. I think a brewery, I think they're good friends with it. Off-colour. Mm-hmm. Tastes like off-colour beers. If someone said, oh, what beers, what other brewery do their beers taste like? I'm like, no, they, they just taste like off-colour beers. It's quite, quite unique. I, when I enjoyed, when I enjoyed visiting Chicago in 2016, I found that with a lot of breweries. I think Weiner was another one. I'm like, hey, these beers taste like Weiner beers. There's like a real, like, locality to them. Um, and I see that more and more in the UK. And so I decided to split the book by region because I wanted to try and instill this sense of regionality. And actually, a lot of these old family brewers, you know, that aren't in the book because it's not called traditional British beer. But Timothy Taylor's, who make Landlord, Harvey's, who make Sussex Best, outstanding beers that taste of the place. They, like they, they are so wedded to their environment and the ingredients they use, and that's so important. And I think a lot of the smaller breweries are twigging like this is really important. If we're going to make beers, they're going to have to speak of our brewery, the way we make beer, the ingredients we use, the people that drink it, and, and be reflective of our, of our place. I want to travel around the UK and go, hey, the IPAs taste different in Bristol than they do in Newcastle uh, because they're hundreds of miles apart. They're using different water. They have different ideas. They talk to different people. That's really important. And I think we're at the beginning of that becoming more important because there's so many, so many breweries. And it's that like just growing and trying to look the same as everyone else. Like that might work for some people. For me, that's boring. 
I'm really excited about these breweries that are exploring that. Another good example is Burning Sky in Sussex in the south of England, uh, which, again, probably quite comparable to someone like Off Colour in that their beers taste very much of themselves. And they make cask beer, they make West Coast IPAs, they make Belgian Saisons, and they make spontaneous beer now. They, they make everything, but it all is imbued with this sense of it. this is something they want to do their way, and they taste like Burning Sky beers. They're incomparable. And that, that's something I think is just going to grow and explode. I hope. But I'm an optimist. That's what I would like to see from beer. Mm-hmm. I do feel as though there is a strong sense of optimism that com- that comes through the book, both in terms of sort of your um, your statement of what it means to be a modern producer insofar as the sustainability in terms of the use of, a- of, local, of local agriculture and uh, in terms of inclusiveness and equity-minded. Some of these are sort of newer things that are coming to both uh, even American craft beer and um, I would imagine to British craft in a, to a certain extent. You're listening to Heavy Hops. We'll have more from Matthew Curtis in a minute. There are a few things happening in the world of Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra at the moment I want to share. Live music is back. You can find tickets to all Scorched Tundra Presents shows at scorchedtundra.com slash tickets. We've also created a crowdfunding source for all things Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra. If you love what we do and want to support us, find the donate link in the episode notes and give what you'd like. Giving any amount will grant you access to our growing Discord community and an opportunity to contribute to making this show and Scorched Tundra content the best it can be. Thanks for this moment, and back to our conversation about modern British beer with Matthew Curtis. Looking at, you know, this definition of modernity, in a certain extent, you have producers that are that are looking at things regionally and that are doubling down on that. But a part of modernity that we've seen in the U.S. is actually uniformity in, in another to another degree as well. And that comes down to uh, the use of ingredients and that comes down to um, taste-making forces as well that are guiding things, whether it's uh, internet resources, whether it's print magazines, or actually like uh, people themselves being cl- as a cluster a force in that. Is that also a part of modernity uh, for you? It's definitely representative of something that's happening in British beer. And I talk about this at the beginning of the book, like how there is an idea... Uh, in some boardrooms around the country that craft beer is a 5.4% hazy beer brewed with citra and mosaic. And, you know, there are breweries that make these beers have been acquired. They are an, an upscaled massively. I mentioned Beavertown is a great example. Um, this has become like, oh, this is what we've invented craft beer and all people want when they think craft beer is, is this mid-strength hazy beer, not too bitter, tastes like fruit juice, And that's where we've come. And I guess there's a deliberate, you know, I could have written a book that had 80 pale ales and IPAs in it, but that would have been fucking boring, right? I wanted to express how varied and different it is. And my argument is actually that uniformity is not modern. It's like, okay, I'm going to level with you. I'm I'm quite anti-capitalist, right? And I think the idea that you're pursuing beer as, as this uniform whole, like I want to make a pale ale with citra and mosaic and sell loads of it. You can do that. But like, I think there's going to come a point where people are like, is that, is that it? Maybe it's me. I go into a bar and go, is, is that it? I, I'm, I know people are making, like, for example, there's seven lagers in the book. And I was thinking if I lined all seven of those lagers up and you could all call them all a lager, they all taste completely different to each other. Even if you took the Keller Pills from Lost and Grounded in Bristol and the Keller Lager from uh, Braybrook in Market Harbour, they are two styles, except one of them is based on a Munich style beer and it's quite spritzy. It's got a bit of lemon zest flavour. It's quite herbaceous. And if you take the one from uh, Braybrook, it's based on the Franconian style, so it's like this rounded, chewy malt character. And yet, on the label, it says Keller beer, Keller lager. So to the consumer, they're like, oh, this is the same thing. And you sit down with them, and it's a totally different experience. It's the same experience in that it tastes nice and it's refreshing, but it doesn't taste the same. 
that for me, that's what craft beer was all about originally, right? Uh, before it became this this pursuit of of, of wealth, um, and I lay out quite early on in the book that, that that my idea of modernity is not rooted in in terms of beer is not rooted in that pursuit of growth and wealth. That that's incredibly dull to me. I used to find it really interesting when we had hardly any new breweries coming through, and then there was this explosion and they started growing. I was obsessed with the fact that they were being successful and they were growing really rapidly, and I really clung to the most successful breweries because I wanted to scream like, "Look at look at the speed these guys are growing!" And I didn't stop to think at the time, like, "Is that is that it? Should they be more pursuit of nurturing?" Uh, why why are you growing so quickly what what's the rush here why the urgency um and you know now i know it's because there's only a limited uh, um, amount of money in the checkbook for the for the guys who want to acquire you and there was a race to get to that and i think that now that's happened that kind of rush we we're not seeing acquisitions at the same rate we we were um, and they will continue to filter through occasionally, but I think it'll be more people looking for a bargain with someone not doing so well rather than trying to find the most successful brewery. At least that's, you know, that's a theory. So, you know, I my idea of modernity is rooted in this, in variety. Um, I don't want to use the word innovation. That's thrown out a lot, you know. A lot of the beer that we enjoy now is based on historical recipes and looking back. It's not really about innovation. It's about it's about respect um, and about respect for where your ingredients are coming from. You know, I'm far more interested now in walking into a brewery and say, oh, yeah, this is the relationship with the maltster and the hop farmer I have. And, you know, I get to go to the field where my ingredients are grown. And um, you see that in the U.S. a lot now with all the craft maltsters you have, which is that's something I'm really excited about. Um, and maybe we'll see that in the UK, although we have some very good monsters already. So maybe maybe we already have that. But yeah, that's I want to see more variety and uh, less of a push to be like the biggest and more of a push to be like we want to be successful. Like It's about defining that success. A lot of breweries, I think, wanted that success to be about size and growth. And now I think that success should be about having longevity, building a legacy you know, which which UK brewer is going to bake a beer like Allagash White that people are going to, in 20 years' time, going to turn around and go, that's my favourite beer. Where's the next Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, the, the brewery that legacies are building on? I don't, you know, I don't see a lot of those. Maybe, fingers crossed, some of the beers I put in the book are are those beers. We're not there yet. That's modern British beer too. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think you, you bring up uh, a, a number of very valid points as far as what modernity sort of means and what success means and how it can be complicated to sort of track these things and they don't always overlap uh, necessarily. Now, about sort of people that are actually drinking these beers and the consumers that are out there, the modern beer drinker, uh, how are they different from the beards that you described from the 70s? Oh, they still exist. They just have more tattoos. <laughs> so they look like I, me. Okay, I get it. <laughs> I think, I think, um, no, I think that's really important. And like, there's always going to be enthusiasts. And it's always frustrated me the way people are labeled the hipster tag. Um, I think... Beer is pushing to be more diverse at the moment, right? And it's getting called out for its mistakes. We've seen that in the US, we've seen that in the UK. And there are people in beer working to make it uh, more of a women-orientated space, more of an LGBTQ plus friendly space, uh, more friendly to to black communities and Asian communities. Um, Apologies for the sweeping generalization there, but you know what I mean? Trying to make beer more open to to more people and... um, this is this is something that's incredibly exciting. You know, beer was just labelled as this great white male pursuit, um, and like that's that's the hazy pale ale. It's just boring. Like, who wants it to be like that? Um, it, yeah. So this is this is a huge part of modernity. It's a huge part of selecting the breweries that that were in there. There are there are women owned breweries in the book. There are black owned breweries in the book. Um, there's my friend Lily Waite, who owns the Queer Brewing Project, uh, based in London, doing incredible things for beer. Um, that's the next wave, really. The, the thing is, though, 
there's there's a lot of urgency to that. There always is with beer. There's there's the idea that it needs to be done now, and I think there's work happening that's in the early stages of what will take years, um, and hopefully some of it will take months. You know, we'll see some stuff change rapidly. Um, you know, like I say at the beginning of the second chapter, the beer is in a constant state of flux. I think now more than ever, it's a turbulent time. It's a turbulent time for everyone. We've just experienced like an apocalypse, right? <laughs> Everything has changed and it's given us a kick up the ass. Uh, and it's just convincing people that, yeah, it's worth putting in the effort and uh, sitting with the guilt that, yeah, maybe we didn't do enough to be open and inclusive with beer. So... Here's to the next step, really. I've just opened a second beer, so I'm going <laughs> to toast to that. Yeah, Cheers. toast to that. Now, I was on a trip to, and I want to um, kind of switch gears a little bit because I think that there's actually a very broad influence that modern British beer plays outside of Britain that's worth that's worth some attention. Um, and I was in Scandinavia recently, and uh, I... I I travel there quite a bit, and so I've seen, I've always been sort of interested in what they're serving there and what the ebbs and flows are because it's, you know, a little bit different than what we have, uh, what we see at home. And so, uh, for example, I was, uh, I saw Fiend, uh, Thornbridge, Polly's, The Colonel, Siren, and a number of breweries on tap at the bar, some of which I had not heard of and then read your book uh, later and thought, oh, that's cool. I wish, Kind of wish I'd read that before, but uh, in any event, um, there's always been sort of like a strong trade history between Scandinavia and Britain as in the beverage world, and so it wasn't terribly surprising to see all these beers on draft at these places, especially the ones that are owned by British people, right? But one of the surprising things was that there wasn't as much American beer and that the British beer had almost taken the place of these of the American exports, which was uh, pretty interesting to me uh, in light of sort of how strong American craft exports are and also what I'd imagine kind of Brexit happen, impacting all of that, right? Which we can we can open up that can too. So this this is like, this is modern beer as well, right? How is sort of the modern British beer uh, influencing the outside world from your uh, from your perspective? First, that's a really interesting point you picked up on about American beer. Like, when I had that moment 10 years ago, I could buy, like, Dogfish Head 60 Minute, Odell IPA, um, you know, pre-buyout Goose Island IPA. It was really easy to get these beers. I mentioned Racer 5, I think, earlier as well. Like, like that was great. You don't see those beers around anymore. Most of them pulled bar, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. Sierra Nevada is very, very popular over here. And Brooklyn Lager, which I think like at least 50%, if not more than that, is exported. And that's usually popular in Europe. But yeah, you're right. And you would go to events like McKellar Beer Celebration and it would be about drinking rare American craft. And I think um, not just the UK and Britain, but people have caught up with uh, all of what was happening in the US. They were, there was a time when people always used to say that the American craft beer scene is 10 years ahead in terms of the flavor of the beer it produces. I think that's not, that's no longer true in terms of the largely the beers that have been producing, um, you know, they're on a, you know, the quality of beer around the world, be it in San Diego or Auckland, New Zealand or Tokyo, wherever you're going to go, there's some amazing breweries now. I think in the case of Scandinavia is a good example because you're right, you go there a few years ago and you'd find a lot of imports, but now you would, you catch up and you find a lot of interesting breweries there like Gamma, like Warpigs, right? Mm-hmm. That, are, that are making US style beers. And it's always worth remembering that like Scandinavia is really close to the UK, like geographically, like it's it's a two hour flight, less than that to, to Copenhagen from from London, and you know it's accessible. Brexit is you know you did open that can of worms. I don't think you've got a long enough podcast to really go into that. That's made you know that's that's not just shooting ourselves in the foot. That's like taking a machete to our ankles and saying we don't need feet anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's you know I don't think you'll find anyone in brewing that thinks Brexit is a good thing, and if you. Uh, and if you do, they're probably someone who people don't like very much. You know, even I was I sent, I sent a book to someone in Europe and they're like, oh, yeah, it's like twice as much as it used to cost. It used to be the same, but now, you know, you're going to have to pay a lot of money just to send a book in an envelope. Um, that's that's it's, it's crazy. 
what's interesting now about British influence is I think it is changing because you mentioned Thornbridge there and they've been sending beers to the US for a long time. Um, and they, you mentioned Garrett Oliver as well. They have a great relationship with him and they've done some really interesting collabs. And I think this book might hit that at a time where uh, I've had so much US interest from this book. And I mentioned to you pre-podcast that there isn't a US distributor yet and it's something we're working on. But like, I think that's really interesting that I'm getting all these DMs and emails from people in the States going, I want to read this because I really need to catch up with British beer and I want to, I want to know what's happening. And I feel we're at this point yet, like where we, we are in terms of what we're doing. It's these small breweries are, are interesting. They're creative. You know, we've got breweries like Cloudwater, which is you know, it's local to me, one of the most respected brewers anywhere now and they're really known for their hazy ipas you know they are for their dippers and tippers but like here in manchester people go there for their hellas which is amazing and they make cask beer but they only make it occasionally they don't make it all the time um track brewery is another brewery in manchester that make very high beers but they also make a pale ale on cask called sonoma uh in tribute of a certain sonoma based brewery that is well known for its use of hops and but it's a it's a 3.8 percent cast beer and it's absolutely outstanding and now i have like u.s brewers that want to come over and drink these beers and they started to come to events like cloudwater's festival friends and family and beer um and when cloudwater brought those breweries over you had guys from like green cheek and, and highland park uh being taken to like old pubs in corners of manchester and like here's some bitter and mild but then they're trying the new and the old and this and i think people are gradually getting the idea that yes that there is this old world kind of romance to british beer but actually the book is representative of how we've grown like we've taken on this influence it would have been easy to say a few years ago that we just look like us beers and i actually think like even in terms of like the more innovative breweries the hazy ipas we're making they don't taste quite like the US ones, they, they have that regional influence that I mentioned earlier. So I think it's really interesting, like as the world opens up again and, you know, people from the States start coming over, I, I'm really interested to see what happens. I mentioned St. Mars of the Desert Brewery earlier. That's a good example of a brewery that was, they were, Dan and Martha, pretty things in Boston. And they were really well respected and loved. And now they based in Sheffield and called St. Mars of the Desert and they, they're making some familiar recipes like Jack Daw, their Saison, Field Mouse's Farewell, another Saison, uh, um, Our Finest Regards, a barley wine. But actually the bit, they don't taste the same. They've developed them, they're using different water, they've got a different brew kit. So, you know, people coming for Pretty Things beers, they're not, they're St. Mars beers. But then what that has done is it's a little, little spark saying, I really want to go to Sheffield and I'm like, well, great, you can go to St. Mars, but then you can try beers from Abbeydale Brewing, which has been brewing there for 25 years and makes some great, it makes a great bitter, great pale ale. But then have you tasted like their Funk Dungeon, Funk Dungeon Brett beers? Like they're amazing too. So I think, like, I would like this book to get into a lot of uh, hands in the States and like have a better picture of what it actually looks like here. Because it's reassuring in that all the things you really want to see, all that, all those old pubs, um, they're still there. You can still get a great pint of bitter. But like, here's some idea of where we're headed. And it doesn't look exactly like where you're headed anymore. It's not all of the... We're not like a, just a carbon copy of what's happened in the States. It's been the biggest influence on what we're doing by far, mm -hmm. by, by miles. What's happened in the US, the craft beer revolution has changed. The, you know, you go to... You can go to Rio de Janeiro and buy Hazy IPA because, because of it. You can go... Um, to South Africa, you can go to Australia, Japan, and you will find Hazy IPA. And that's that's kind of cool. But I think in terms of British beer, uh, it's not the be-all and end-all. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm really proud of this book, and I'm really excited uh, to, for people to get hold of it. You know, I'm going to stop myself there because <laughs> I'm starting to get self-congratulatory. Oh, but I think you, point, you made a very interesting point that uh, leads me to an idea about cultural confidence and market maturation too, because it, not that Brits or Americans need any more cultural confidence, but, or that we're lacking in that way of, of, of any kind. But I do think that 
getting the acknowledgement of people who may have read British homebrewing sources in the first place and become inspired in the U.S. to make, uh, to start a craft brewery, or maybe for some of the breweries that you pointed out in the Highland Parks and the younger ones, it was their father that was reading the text. Nonetheless, the influences kind of have become full circle, and that this is the image of these brewers from uh, hyped breweries in the U.S. sitting in the U.K. drinking uh you know, 2.8% to 3% cask beer um, is a beautiful sort of like modern image in a way because it's these things that are continuing to circuit and run in circles. And with each revolution, there's these new sorts of inspiration points that come out of them. And I was getting that quite a bit when reading about uh, Scottish breweries taking Belgian influences, for example, or reading about horizontal tanks being uh, installed at breweries. It it really... um, it points out, as you mentioned earlier, sort of the possibilities of modernity not being conformity. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Let's close things out here. So one of the producers that comes to mind for me in looking at beer and beer culture from Britain being exported is obviously Brewdog. You have so many small producers like the Thorn Bridges like the Harvest Ales and all these other things that have come through that are at this point sort of legacy brands in our market. But then you have BrewDog and and they're really sort of an elephant in the room in a lot of ways because of not only uh, their sort of brash marketing and their uh, private equity sort or like their membership association and also their aggressive sort of chain pub movements in Europe, especially like, I think that that was really not uh, entirely authentic experience for people with British beer, but it was an opportunity to experience that brand in its place. And so I'm kind of curious as to where you see Brewdog fitting into this uh, world of the British modern beer being interpreted by outsiders. So, it's a, I'm really glad you asked this because I think it's important to deal with this head on. I put Brewdog in the book. I'm aware of all of the problematic behavior. I mean, they've been a problematic for, for a long time um, at, in terms of some of the marketing they've done. But more recently, they've been exposed for being a terrible employer. Um, we saw what happened in Ohio uh, with those employees being fired. Uh, we've seen what's happened in the UK where Punks with Purpose, a collective of present and former employees, have written open letters to one of the founders, James Watt, and basically written an ultimatum that people are trying to unionise within there now and they're resisting that. It, it's not good. And... Uh, it, it saddens me. But what you have to understand about Brewdog is in the early days, they did something no one was doing. Well, that's not true. They did something that a lot of people were doing and had had been doing since the early 90s, using American ingredients, trying to change up their branding. But actually, uh, things were happening too slowly. We wouldn't be where we were. I might, might not even be writing about beer if it wasn't for Brewdog. When I came back from the US after my first beer experience, some of the first beers I bought were Brewdog beers. Punk IPA, their flagship, I tried to talk as, as tactfully as possible about how it's changed. Ten years ago, it was a different beer. It was a hoppy, bitter, uh, really powerfully flavorful beer. Now it's pretty tame, you know, uh, and and it, it, and it's a lower ABV than it used to be. They really did take a crowbar to the market, and I think a lot of breweries wouldn't exist, and the market as it looks like now in the UK wouldn't exist um, if it wasn't for their influence. And honestly, I laid awake at night thinking about removing them from the book because they talked about a lot in the early days uh, of, of modernity and how I tried to put all that together. Um, and I spent a lot of time chatting to Martin Dickey, the, the other co-founder, other than James Watt. So Martin Dickey is more involved with production uh, and ingredient procurement and working on their sustainability stuff. And I researched into that. And their sustainability drive uh, is is legit. You know, this is something that needs to happen. This is something that, that Martin has, you know, he showed me his PowerPoint presentation about it. It's, it's you know, uh, it, it, it was fascinating 
you know, it's been labelled as greenwashing and, uh, you know, the proof will be in the pudding, but it, it looks real to me. That doesn't undo all the bad shit they've been doing, not at all. But no, after many discussions with my editors, we decided to uh, to leave them in because they're important, just as they're mentioned by breweries like The Colonel, who, who are, have also had a huge influence on changing the face of beer. But Brewdog, you know, they went out on a limb. It's interesting you mentioned the bars because in the early days there weren't really bars like that they've got a hundred or so now but back in the day you just couldn't find places like that that would have well they'd have brewdog beers but half the taps would usually be guest beer that's still the case i know a lot of breweries won't sell beer to them if i had a brewery i definitely wouldn't sell beer to them i don't agree with them politically and i don't think they're handling the situation with their former employees and these allegations of abuse uh, properly um, and I hope I do, the thing is I, I do believe uh, in intent and redemption and, and working through this and if you know if they don't work on it then yeah they, they're going to get hung out to dry deservedly so um, and there are breweries I took out of the book that in the UK so Beavertown I mentioned before Camden Town Brewery were very influential Magic Rock Brewery in the north of England very influential but actually I thought about it that those breweries all followed the, the model that Brewdog established so writing about Brewdog more or less says that this is kind of what happened and then they pursued then they sold out they pursued growth they pursued capitalism and that didn't really fit into what I was trying to talk about so yeah I still lose sleep about it it's it's rough all I can do now is try and argue the case like I do think they need to be in there because uh, I have to truck that. It, it's a real grounding point in what's happened in the last uh, 20 years in the UK. Uh, but that I can, I'm confident that I can write about that and still uh, support the, the workers who have been uh, wronged by them. So uh, that's, that's where I am. I mean, beer at the moment, if you've been keeping up with what's happening, with there's been a Me Too movement. Um, starting with Brienne Allen at Notch Brewing in in Salem, and and all of these stories of of abuse and sexual harassment, and it's jarring, it's unnerving, but it's also powerful. Um, but like I said earlier, this, this is we're at the start of conversations that are going to take years to resolve. I don't wish, you know, I, I'm aware that we're not going to wake up tomorrow and this is going to be fixed. Uh, it's just a case of getting the word out to more people, getting getting more people uncomfortable and then then willing to challenge themselves through that discomfort to actually do something. Um, unfortunately, that means sitting with that every every single day at the moment. Um, but, you know, that's where we are. Mm -hmm. Will Brewdog be in modern British beer too, the return? I don't know. Um, but there was no way I could have put this book together without talking about what they did in the early days because you couldn't get beers like that. And, well, if you could... People weren't really talking about them. They were they were kept kept for the geeks. And now um, Punk IPA is, as they call it, the best selling craft beer in in the UK. And it's paved. It's normalised that the beer that looks like that tastes like that. It allowed so many small breweries to 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 flourish. That's that's the truth. And hopefully, those small breweries will have learned the lesson from those that came before them and, and do right by people, make good beer, and maybe not care about being so big. You know what? Like, what's it all for? Mm -hmm. Anyway, it is what it is, um, and uh, but I'm confident there's the conversations that are happening now are are really crucial, and we're at the start of something. And it's, we're in the next phase. You know, we've had the, I've talked about the past, the craft beer revolution, and all that. That's over. We're done. We're at the start of something new now. It's post pandemic. It's scary. It's hard work, but I think there's plenty of people willing to, to put in that effort. Mm -hmm. I do think that BrewDog is a good sort of example of a company that has really uh, struggled with negotiating all of the uh, sort of modern concerns that a company that experiences that sort of hyper growth and the choices that they've made good and bad along the way. And for a lot of the business, a lot of the small businesses and breweries that you feature in your book, a lot of them are inspired by BrewDog, whether good or bad, and that can be a really powerful source for people. So it is, uh, it is an important inclusion, uh, I feel. Now, uh, we talked about 
uh, Brexit earlier a little bit, and I and I want to kind of parlay that into the conversation about the wider influence of British beer. Now, when you were referring to the size and scale of breweries as not just not only as a sort of what their limits, what their upper limitations may be or what their space may offer, but also as a sort of larger level of comfort or uh, satiation with their level of capitalism or and general business ambitions. Right. And so for a lot of these breweries where their market may be very crowded, export is a very good opportunity for them. And as European markets, and I understand that you can export beer much further away than Europe. That's where a lot of the beer that we were alluding to in the U.S. that hasn't found its way to Europe anymore is making its way to Asia and to anywhere that'll buy it, frankly. Um and so what does Brexit sort of mean within this as these breweries may reach their capacity or what they can sell locally and, you know, want to be able to send elsewhere? It's a horrendous nightmare. Like I know so many breweries that relied so heavily on trade into into Europe. So a good example, uh, like um, Wyland Brewery in Newcastle, Polly's Brewery in North Wales, um, they were sending beer to, to all over Spain, to Italy, uh, to France. There are, there are amazing craft beer bars all over these countries. And they um, they have a huge trade built on UK beer because that's kind of like hype. Like it's it's really exciting. That is to us what American beer was to, to us. Like the US market, people have, in the UK have tried exporting to the US, but like why would a brewery export its hazy IPA to like the East Coast? Like who's going to pay twice the price um, for something that, that looks the same? It might taste a little bit different. It won't be as fresh. But in terms of like, you know, France and Spain and uh, and even in Brussels, quite a few of the sort of more modern bars are like, yeah, I really want to get some kernel. I really, I really want to get some, some polys. That's, that's exciting. And um, Brexit is, I mean, we, we, it's fucked. No one knows. We, we, it, like I, I told you like, earlier, like we, we could do a whole hour on, on like it was done without any plan. Um, and just no one's figured it out yet. I, like even as a small business owner that like I have a, a, a magazine called Pellicle, um, which I should have mentioned way earlier, but like as a limited company, even though it's a small publishing company, it's tiny, one of the smallest companies in the UK probably. Um, but I've had to like, reread on like i've got a document on my desk about paying for licensing just so people in europe can read it and i'm not breaking the law and i'm like I, why have i got this letter is it real yes like, like what's happening like no, no, no one knows uh, but breweries are losing trade and anything they they can send it's taking much longer so the beer is not getting there as fresh it's costing them disproportionately huge amounts it's chaos. No one knows. What's ha- I don't have an answer on like what's happening because I don't know. I've I used to like get the train to Brussels, um, and when I got there, I didn't have to pay any extra to use my 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 phone or data, um, and I didn't need a visa. And now, I mean, when I go to the states, I have to get my Esther, and it, you know, it's pretty simple. But now, like every European country I go to, I have to get a different, have to pay a fee, have to get a different thing. It, it's mad. Uh, um, and you know, as I'm really somewhere I'm desperate to get back to. One of my favorite cities in Europe is Prague. Um, I just love, love going there and drinking deep of Pilsner. And it used to be like just book a flight, book a hotel, jump. It's like you could do it in a weekend. And now it's like, like just this is this isn't even selling beer. This is just like going on vacation it's a nightmare like i have to get like a test on the way there test on the way back do i have to pay for it like holy shit so um yeah we've as i said earlier i think you know we haven't just shot ourselves in the foot we've just taken the machete straight to the ankle and gone don't need these anymore and now we're just hobbling around on bloody stumps that's a, an amazing visual do you have any sort of final thoughts for our listeners what I will say about modern British beer is uh, uh, it's not available in the US officially. There are a bunch of bigger UK booksellers. Uh, Waterstones is one. Blackwell's is another. Uh, if you Google the book title Modern British Beer, they come up. I think it appeared on... There are resellers on Amazon. Um, Amazon.co.uk aren't selling it internationally, but I think it's appearing. I would. I don't like promoting Amazon because uh, I'd rather you buy it from an independent 
bookseller, but that's not a possibility. And I would like people in the US to get my books. So there's options. You just might have to pay a little bit of shipping, but hopefully in a month or two, I might have something uh, more concrete for US people, especially uh, because there has been a lot of demand. A lot of people are excited to read this book and I'm determined to get it over to you. But some people have managed to get it. Some people have paid shipping on it. I hope they really enjoy it. Uh, I think it's, I'm really proud of it. I think it's, I think it's really good. And I say that as a writer who, you know, I'm, I'm a career beer writer who writes articles every week uh, to, to keep a roof over my head. And I often go back to something I wrote a few months ago and go, what was I thinking? <laughs> like, this, this is not very good. But I read, every time I pick up Modern British Beer, it's on my desk and uh, I open a page and I'm like, yeah, I'm really content with it. And I'm really excited for people to, to read it. I hope, I hope, I hope a lot of people do. And we'll do our part by putting uh, some links in the episode notes so that people can find it regardless of where they live. So, Matt, thank you so much for joining us on Heavy Hops. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you so much, Alexi. I've really enjoyed myself. Cheers. Cheers.